our Father and our God, Lord Jesus Christ, Spirit of the living God, may you display even in these moments the power of your word as it is proclaimed about our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, God come in the flesh, God incarnate, who comes to save his people from their sins and to bring us genuine peace. And we pray, Father, that you would do this by your sovereign and loving spiritual grace in Jesus' name, amen. A pastor friend of mine was out for a run one day. At various times in his ministry, he, he moonlighted as an EMT, and so he was trained in various aspects of emergency medicine. Well, he was out for a run, as I mentioned, and all of a sudden, his breathing became very labored, uh, out of breath long before he should have been for uh, a routine exercise episode. In fact, he got very weak and was sweating profusely in a way that had, he had not previously experienced on a run. And he even got so weak that he had to lie down on the sidewalk. The first thing that came to his mind was, I am not having a heart attack. And then his EMT training kicked in, and he realized that one of the symptoms of having a heart attack was denial. <laughs> and so his saying, I'm not having a heart attack, was actually a symptom of having a heart attack. And yes, he was having a heart attack. We humans have a peace problem, and, and, and we're in denial that we have a peace problem. Oh, in a sense, we're not in denial that we have a peace problem. We're very aware of the wars and rumors of wars that we see pervasive through our media-saturated culture. Ukraine has occupied our minds for a couple of years only to be supplanted by the war in Israel-Palestine. And we are at least vaguely aware that sections of our cities in this country bear a striking resemblance to a war zone and we know that we live in a violent age. But at various times, people have been in denial even of that kind of violence. World War I, for instance, was to be the war to end all wars. The League of Nations was to settle international conflicts once and for all. That turned out to be the voice of hubris, the epitome of cultural naivete. And then came World War II, Neville Chamberlain, Prime Minister of Britain, goes to Munich and he gets Hitler to sign the Anglo-German Agreement in which Hitler agrees to limit annexation of Europe to the Sudetenland and preserve Czechoslovakia's independence and that Germany and Britain would never be at war with one another again. He returns to Britain triumphant, greeted by throngs of exuberant crowds. He addressed the crowd from a balcony at number 10th Downing Street and declared, I believe it is peace for our time. Now I recommend, he says, that you go home and sleep quietly in your beds. And within six months, Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia and British bedrooms were eventually bombed. And the rest, as they say, is history. Denial, however, didn't start in the 20th century. Judah was under pressure from Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in the 7th century BC. And yet the Neville Chamberlains of Judah, the professional prophets, assured the people of Jerusalem that they had nothing to fear. Now, Jeremiah, always it seems, the bearer of bad news, 
had to bring the hammer down. He said in Jeremiah 6, they have, defeated, they have healed the wound of my people, lightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Apart from the imminent threat of these denials, we are all aware of the dangers of our times, both here and abroad. But the real denial of our peace problem is the denial of the role the human heart plays in the turmoil. The story is that a newspaper editor in England posed a question seeking responses that he would then publish in the editorial page of that newspaper, and the question went like this, what is wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton, the great journalist and social commentator, wrote a letter in response. It said simply, dear sirs, I am sincerely yours. G.K. Chesterton. I'm the problem. I'm what's wrong with the world. The origin of the peace problem is the human heart. And the reason why we have wars in Ukraine and in Israel-Palestine, the reason why we have murders in our cities, and the reason why hundreds of thousands die of fentanyl poisoning, and the reason why there are more than 25 million human beings who are trafficked in the world today is because the human heart is not peaceful. In fact, the human heart is sinful. The human heart is wicked, in fact, at its very core. The default setting of the human heart is selfishness. And the society and its media reinforces that tendency and disposition. We find this testimony early in Scripture, Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah says it in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's what we are in denial about. We are in denial that the root of hatred and violence and war and conflict lies within each one of us. And we're unwilling to admit that. And instead, we're willing to chase after rainbows of phantom solutions to these problems especially when those solutions amount to the removal of all of those who don't see the world the way we do. If we can't kill them, we'll cancel them. If we can't persuade them, then we'll silence them one way or another. Of course, the world is filled with counterfeit peace movements. We saw it in the 60s, the flower children, a.k.a. the hippies who gathered in places like Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco in the summer of love in 1967, distributing flowers and calling everyone to idyllic lives of peace and love. But the flower children had no impact on the human heart, and they had no impact on the world as a result. We see it all the time in our political discourse, how politicians speak in messianic terms during election seasons of how under his or her leadership, this conflict or that war or this other problem would never have happened. But not one of those politicians from whatever side of the political divide has any solution to the human heart. We see it through the peace through strength ideology. However prudent the geopolitical strategy is to keep the lid on violent extremism and the elements in our world, no solution for the human heart flows out of the cabinet rooms of the world's superpowers. In fact, what, that was the strategy for peace in the ancient world. And the current iteration of our day is barely a sanitized version of the brutal Pax Romana 
That was a period of about 200 years, spanning the time of Caesar Augustus and ending with the death of Marcus Aurelius. And yet historians will admit that the designation of Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was misleading at best. Historians will say that it's pretty much like what they used to say about the Holy Roman Empire. It was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. The Pax Romana was anything but peaceful. It was a relative peace in which the hegemony of Roman rule reached its zenith, in which Rome ruled 70 million people, about 33% of the world's population at the time, and governing Europe from Spain to current-day Turkey and most of the population centers of North Africa, the entirety then of the Mediterranean basin. It was a time of prosperity and trade and travel, but it was all achieved and enforced by the brutal boots of the dictator's armies, and it had nothing to do for the human heart. Every single human ideology, political or otherwise, is a counterfeit peace movement. And today's incipient neo-Marxism, which is so pervasive in our universities and even in our schools, is no different. Human history is a history of lost causes. It is against the backdrop of counterfeit peace that Isaiah speaks. He says in Isaiah 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as when they are glad when, the, when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire." And what is it that will achieve this destruction of the destroyers? What will achieve true peace for our time indeed? Peace for all time. Well, it's, it's shocking. It's a child. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. True peace delivered by this child born, this son given. The peace here is shalom in Hebrew. It's, it's delivered by the prince of peace, delivered by, in other words, the executive officer of the Godhead, but not a prince who enforces the, this uh, peace by dictatorial boot, but one who by love transforms the selfish and wicked and hateful human heart by his grace. It is this prince of peace that we focus on in this final message of Advent this season. First, the peace in view in this passage, this shalom, is not the mere cessation of conflict or of war, not the bare suppression even of violent expressions that is the most we can hope for in the merely human sphere. True shalom is that and much more. It's a, a settled satisfaction, a, a, con a confident rest that all enmity and all antagonism have been resolved 
a sense that from the inside out, a genuine a sense of well-being pervades the human personality and extends through all relationships. Todd Wilson puts it this way, not simply a psychological ease, but a holistic sense of fulfillment, well-being, and flourishing. Cornelius Plantinga summarizes the message of Isaiah in this passage in which he says, they dreamed of a new age in which human crookedness would be straightened out, rough places made plain, the foolish would be made wise and the wise foolish. They dreamed of a time when the deserts would flower, the mountains would run with wine, weeping would cease, the people would go to sleep without weapons on their laps. People would work in peace and work to fulfill to fruitful effect. Lambs could lie down with the lions. All nature would be fruitful, benign, and filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood. And all nature and all humans would look to God, walk with God, lean toward God, and delight in God. Shouts of joy and recognition would well up from valleys and seas, from women in streets, and from men on ships. Plantinga summarized it by saying, the webbing together of humans and God and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. And in this text, the Prince of Peace will accomplish it in two ways, two ways which human efforts have always sought but never been able to attain. He will end war. He will break the rod of the oppressor. He will destroy the artifacts and instruments of war once and for all. He will rule also in a way that promotes universal well-being and safety and security and human flourishing. Increasing his government and peace, ruling with justice and righteousness, which human actors can never seem to even approximate. And he will do that heart by heart. And then by extension, heart from heart, to relationship by relationship, and then church by church, and society by society. Isaiah said in Isaiah 11, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. This won't happen all at once. Wilson says the way he will put our world to right, a process of peacemaking that Christians believe began at Christ's birth, but won't be completed until Christ returns in glory to consummate what he has begun but it has begun. The Prince of Peace begins to act to bring shalom with the most significant of all relationships. He brings it to the relationship we have with God. And it is this relationship in which we are in most denial. Most people have no sense that apart from the grace of God, we are enemies with God. That God is opposed to us, that he's against us, Jeremiah puts it this way in Jeremiah 50, Behold, I am against you, O proud one, declares the Lord God of hosts, for your day will come, the time when I will punish you. We deny that God is even angry or wrathful against those who act as if he did not exist. We, in our study of the book of Romans, have already seen that. In Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. But the Prince of Peace has come, and, and through the life, death, and resurrection of the Prince of Peace, 
The enmity with God has been dissolved. We saw that in our study of Romans as well. Romans 5, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Dear friends, there is no hope for peace anywhere apart from peace with God. Peace with God by stop being in denial. Peace with God by stopping our incessant presumption that we're just okay without God. Peace from, by stopping our prideful attempts by which we presume we can earn favor with God. Peace by stopping our refusal to consider God in our thinking but peace with God by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, a propitiation. There it is again, very good. By his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation, do you remember what that means? Propitiation is a wrath-removing sacrifice. In other words, you could say it positively, a peace-supplying sacrifice. Redemption received by faith by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, by trusting in his life and his death and in his resurrection. Do you have this peace with God? Do you? There is no hope anywhere in this world apart from peace with God. And once you have peace with God, then you can have peace within, peace in your own soul. The New Testament makes the distinction between peace with God and the peace of God. Philippians says that peace is within, is the peace of God. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And here it is, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard what? your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What are your anxieties? What are your fears? What are your cares? What do you worry about? What wakes you up at night? What do you fret over? When you have peace with God, you can ask him by prayer and supplication and he will give you the peace of God, peace in your heart. Peter puts it this way, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Cast your cares on Jesus and you will have peace in your hearts. Jesus himself said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Dear friends, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus, he's the Prince of Peace and he will give you rest in your souls. He will give you peace within. And then there's peace in the church. Of course, if you have peace with God and peace within, that will carry over into peace in the church. Peace 
with your brothers and sisters. There is no need for enmity with brothers and sisters. In Christ, when each one in humility has cast himself or herself on the mercy of Jesus. The texts of scripture which speak about peace within the church are plentiful in the New Testament. Here are a few, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Romans 14, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Paul in Colossians 3, above all these things, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. 2 Timothy chapter 2, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, in other words, within the church. The author of Hebrews, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Relentlessly, relentlessly the New Testament calls the church to be people of peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. And as the church expands marching across the spans of time and of space, so that God gathers from those from every people and tongue and tribe and nation, then peace will expand in this world because the peacemakers will proclaim not a counterfeit peace, but genuine shalom, which can only come through the Prince of Peace. And when the church has been functioning as the church, it has been a force for peace in this world. Listen to this passage from Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ... In Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, now the issue is interesting. The text is critical, even to such occasions as the war in Israel and the rabid anti-Semitism, which is rampant on our corrupt college campuses these days. The issue is Jew versus Gentile, even back then in Ephesus. And there is only one solution to the enmity between Jew and Gentile, any Gentile, any Gentile, Arab Gentile, European Gentile, American Gentile, any Gentile, the only solution between Jew and Gentile is Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Ephesians 2 continues, verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that, listen, he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Can you imagine one people in Israel, Palestine, Jew and Arab and Palestinian and whatever as one body, 
worshiping together and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a, a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This baby born, this son given, this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting father, this prince of, of peace is the only way we can have peace with God and the only way we can have peace within ourselves and the only way we can have peace in the church and the only way we can have peace in the world. But dear friends, the Prince of Peace will prevail. And if we truly want world peace, which everybody says they want, then we will do everything we possibly can do to spread the gospel of peace to every corner of this globe. That's our purpose. When Russians and Ukrainians embrace the Prince of Peace, there will be no more war in Ukraine. When Jews and Palestinians embrace the Prince of Peace, there will be no more war in Israel-Palestine. When African Americans and white Americans and Hispanic Americans and Asian Americans embrace the Prince of Peace, there will be no more racism, no more violence in the streets, no more destruction in our cities. When Democrats and Republicans embrace the Prince of Peace, there will be no more rancor in our political discourse and no more hateful lies and accusations. And the Prince of Peace will prevail. And we, in this church and in every genuine church of Jesus Christ, will do everything we can do to proclaim the gospel of peace to every people, tongue, and tribe, and nation. Not just abroad, but right here in this community, and in this state, and in this nation. That's the message of the Prince of Peace. Our Father and our God, so move among us in this place among this people to be instruments of peace so that the gospel of Jesus Christ will prevail all over this globe. It's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen.